Hello, Toba community. I'm Dr. Nina back for another episode of Toba Tuesday. I am so honored to have one of our most prolific scholars and social justice advocates here with us today, Dr. Harvey White. Dr. Harvey White is um, an amazing person that really loves the Black community and has fought hard for those who are marginalized over his career as a professor, a city manager, and a public administrator. I think that, you know, the purpose of the show is to educate our community about how we can live healthier lifestyles. And we've talked to social workers, we've talked to community service advocates, but now we have an opportunity to talk to a prolific scholar and a professor who has retired as associate professor at the Joseph Biden Jr. School of Public Policy and Administration at the University of Delaware, where I'm alumni. I am so honored to have Dr. Harvey White on our show today. Welcome, Dr. White. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you, Dr. Anderson. It's good to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much. And I had an opportunity to read your book, Mules, Mountains and Mansions, The Path to the Last Garden. Everyone, this is a wonderful book. It has inspired me, you know, even as leaders and healthcare providers, we all have a journey and a life experience. And it was very empowering to hear your journey and experience to know that I'm not alone out here. And there's times where we hit some bumps in the road, but it seemed like you were able to recover and your sense of strong faith and spirituality seemed like it really helped you along those times that maybe have not been so great, but helped you to kind of readjust and move forward. But I also want to share that Dr. Harvey White, it comes from a humble beginnings as a sharecropper farmer in Alabama and has risen to some of the most uh, highest of uh, public leadership um, post as city manager in Princeville, North Carolina, to being accepted as a Kellogg Fellow and a Ford Foundation Fellow uh, with the Southern Regional Council. Now we're talking to someone who came from humble beginnings, but had that sense of tenacity, um, courage and resilience to move forward um, despite, I mean, the challenges as a black man here in this country that he's all have had to go through. Dr. White, welcome. Talk about that. You come from humble beginnings, but yet you're so accomplished. Well, thank you. I am still affiliated with the University of Delaware as an affiliate uh, professor, and, and I was the associate director. I retired officially from the University of Pittsburgh in 2014. University of Delaware found I was in the area and convinced me to come to the U University of Delaware. I stayed there actually for six years and ended my tenure at the University of Delaware as the associate director of the Joseph Biden School. So I'm delighted uh, to be here in Delaware. Uh, but you're right, I've been blessed. Uh, I, I tell people it's not in spite of the fact or, yeah, it is because I was from humble beginning. It's because I walked behind a mule and a plow that I'm able to do some of the things I've done. It's because I went to an HBCU. It's because 
that I'm able to do today that I went through those things. So those things that I went through during my formative years on the farm, my years in college, my years in graduate school, those challenges, those are the things that have enabled me to actually do some of the things I do today. My management experience on the farm actually helped me. Getting up at four manage. in the morning. Exactly. <laughs> four o'clock in the morning, yes. Uh, sun up to, but well, before sun up and the sun was down before my, my day was finished. But you know, having to take responsibilities for the family at 16, 17 years old when my father became ill, all of the experiences actually strengthened me. Uh, to say, I wish others would go through that, no. But I, I don't regret the fact that I experienced them. And I think they may help to make me a better person and help me to become the man that I am today. Thank you so much for that. And I also want to share with the community, I'm sharing the screen now, um, Dr. White, um, that you graduated from HBCU, North Carolina Central University, but received your PhD at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Um, you're also the founder, director, and visionary for the Gulf Coast Center for Healthy Communities. And um, from reading your book, you are a premier social, what it means to be a social justice advocate. You are very strong with your convictions. You never waver and you fight for those who may not have a voice. And you have done that over all your career. So I want you to share that. You are also a person of strong faith and spirituality. You are a member of Bethel AME Church in Wilmington, Delaware. Um, you have risen to some of the highest levels in government as a city manager, university administrative positions. Um, you also have worked with youth programs, community development, director of urban and regional planning. Also, for those who are interested in purchasing Dr. Harvey White's book, you can go to www.lulu.com. Dr. White, talk about some of your accomplishments. You come from humble beginnings again. You went to an HBCU. Um, we could be here all day, but anything that just comes to mind that you wanted to share? Well, let me start off by saying I'm blessed uh, and, and I, I like to think I'm, I'm modest. I, I don't like to brag, but you know, I, I, I thank God for all the people that have been placed in my life. I thank God for you, you know, we've had some relations in the past and earlier in my tenure here, we came across each other. I think hopefully we've enriched each other's lives, but I think that's part of what has happened much, much in my life. God has put people in my life to kind of inspire me, to encourage me and to support me. So if I think back to my time in high school and I grew up loving America, but there was a time that I became a very angry young man. I became uh, very bitter when I saw the Birmingham bombing where little girls were killed uh, in a church bombing. When I saw uh, Megar Evers and other people being killed, Martin Luther King, uh, it, it made my heart bitter. And I thank God that he has transformed me out of that and understand that uh, you know, one of the worst things you can do is fill yourself with hate and, 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 and crowd out the love. So I think I have love for humanity in me now. But that was a part of me when I went to college. Um, I became determined that I was going to uh, be an instrument for change, that I was going to stand up. And I met professors um, uh, of all races uh, and creeds 
uh, while I was in college who actually encouraged me. Uh, one professor was a German professor who left Germany, Nazi Germany, and mm. couldn't get a job any place in America except at HBCU. Wow. About mm. how important it is for us to stand up and make sure that never happens in this country. So his story is a part of my story. Uh, his, I'm a part of his legacy that he's inspired me as were my basketball coach who told me that there may be some things that you don't know, but there's nothing you can learn. He also mm -hmm. shared with me that, uh, and, and others, that don't allow an impoverished environment to determine what you will become and can become, because that environment is not you. Uh, mm -hmm. You're the environment, but it's not you. And so those are the kinds of things that inspired me very early on. In college, I met some very bright scholars, uh, who talked about the book Conscientiousism and the crewman, how uh, people of African descent around the world have to work together to solve problems collectively. I see that happening again today. Uh, and not to uh, disparage others, but to work collaborative, but understand that our problem is a global issue, it's a humanity issue, and that we need to work collaboratively. So I left college. Uh, Planning to get a PhD, planning to get a law degree, I went to college, and somehow in, the, in, the, in that uh, I fell in love with philosophy and fell in love with politics, and decided though that I wanted to make a difference. Went home and actually after college went to work in a factory. I worked my way through college every summer working in the factory. By the way, you've had some interesting jobs I, I look, besides I farming, working in the factory, youth. <laughs> Advocate director, uh, <laughs> you've done I it love, all. <laughs> uh, you know, I love them all. Work is something that I think is important. Uh, you know, right now, work in the yard. I, I love going out building things, and so you know, I think work is is part of the human spirit and what we should be doing. But, uh, but I worked in that factory for a few months because I had in college had been a leader. I'd been head of the regional student um, student. Youth Organization Black Unity, I was student government president. I uh, was always giving speeches, always uh, involved in protests, trying to protect people, trying to bring about social change. I left uh, college burnout. Mm -hmm. And I was very much involved, again, as you point out, I think in the commitment for you know, social justice. Uh, but back then, uh, I was commitment to a, a movement and I saw some things in that movement that I didn't like, and I discussed those in the book. I would probably don't have time to go through all of those, but I left that movement to understand that there's something broader than any one individual, any one organization, that's social justice, that's human rights. So I think my, my emphasis changed. I think God put, put, positioned people in my life to help me to look beyond just a mere race focus, mm -hmm. but to look at a human focus. Uh, not that I don't still still understand the need to fight for the rights of African Americans, and I do, the Black community, but I also understand that our rights uh, are not exclusive, that it's not mm -hmm. just us, that there are other people out there as well, that the, as we improve things for ourselves, we're also improving things for others. And that becomes very important for us to understand that we need to create an environment that all human beings are created in a, in a fashion they can thrive and become the very best that they can be. But from college to city management, I was 23. One of the youngest city managers in America, 23. Everybody- Imagine that, 23 everybody, telling someone to do, <laughs> running a everybody, city. Everybody was probably at least <laughs> 15 years older than I was. I hear this young whippersnapper coming in, being the manager, making decisions, having to fire people, which is the worst mm -hmm. decision. 
the most difficult thing I've ever done happened to fire someone. I, I, I tell young public administrators today that that is the most difficult decision. But if you have to do it, you have to do it for the organization. And, and, and so went through those, got fired. And uh-huh. again, it wasn't a, a pleasant situation, but I went back to speak in Princefield and the mayor who orchestrated my firing stood up after a speech and said, I'm proud of that boy. That's a wonderful speech. Do you hear what he's done, what he's accomplished? And I made it possible because I fired him. <laughs> and he was, he was right, because if I had stayed there in that historically black town and worked and worked and worked, I would have never gone back to graduate school. Would have never gotten the master's, the PhD, would have never become a professor, would have never been one of the founders of the environmental justice movement. Uh, my work would not have been used by the EPA to set up the environmental justice program they have. So he's right. And I think God sometimes allows things to happen. He doesn't cause them to happen. He allows them to happen because he has another plan for us. I would have never gone to, to uh, become a dean at Southern University if, if mm-hmm. I hadn't had the fire. I would not have been at the University of Pittsburgh. So yes, those things happen, those things happen in your life uh, for a reason. I think um, you mentioned you know, sunsets and sunrises. Yes. So uh, let me not talk too much. Uh, yeah, no, this is great. So I wanted the community to know what is a city manager because I think that most people don't know that you have your mayor, your city manager. Um, these are very key positions um, uh, for a city to run. But talk about your role as a city manager and the responsibility that you have. And the great things that you were able to do to make it sustainable because it was in a financial crisis as well. Yes. Well, without giving too much detail because we don't have time, you have different types of governments. You have a council manager form of government, a commission form of government, and the mayor council form of government. The city manager form of government is where the city manager is the chief executive officer. And the mayor's role is ceremonial when you have a city manager. And so the manager... He's the person who makes the decisions on a daily basis. He, he, you know, he supervises the police chief, the personnel director, all those people report to him. In a, in a mayor situation where you have a mayor council where the mayor is a strong mayor, the mayor is the chief executive officer. So in different parts of the country, in, in Delaware, you have city manager forms of government where you have a part-time mayor and the city manager makes the day-to-day decisions. In, in Wilmington, the mayor is full-time. He runs the city. He is the chief executive officer. In Philadelphia, that's the case. But when you have smaller towns, the mayor will have another job. And he simply runs wow. the meetings and the city manager is hired to make day-to-day decisions. So that is what I did. The interesting thing is I took a course in public administration. When I was hired, I knew nothing about what a city manager could do <laughs> or should do. But I had taken- You figured it out. I figured it out, <laughs> but I was a fast learner. You know, I, yes. I, I did on-the-job learning. I became a, uh, uh, I went out, in fact, one of the things that they had to stop me from doing, once a month, I went out and worked with the sanitation works to pick up garbage because I wanted to see what they did. I worked with the utility mm-hmm. people on the lines. I became a, a, a volunteer firefighter. I became uh, an auxiliary police officer. I did those things so I could learn the job. I did on-the-job training. Within six months, I knew the fundamentals of every aspect of the city. I also enrolled in a city management course at the University of Chapel Hill, and I became certified as a city manager. But no, making those decisions, uh, looking at planning, uh, street maintenance, 
the utility system, tax collection, making personnel decisions, all of those things of what a city manager needs to do or be able to do, or at least be able to have somebody who can advise them on how to do them. And, and, and so that's what I did very early on. And fortunately, I wasn't married, didn't have children, had a lot of time on my hand and, and was a fast learner. And again, that was another foundation, like on the farm, I learned uh, some fundamentals. Being a city manager, I learned some fundamentals that have, that have stayed with me throughout my career. What was the most rewarding part of the job? You left the city in a in a better financial situation that they were in. Um, besides learning the job as a city manager, you had some tough decisions to make, but you were able to get the resources that the city needs so that it was a little bit more sustainable than when you came in. The money piece was something that I you know, feel good about. But the most rewarding thing, I think, during that period, not so much because I was a city manager, because I was young, I played basketball every day with the young people, what were the young people whose lives I touched. They have done some phenomenal things themselves. They have formed something called the old school. They brought me back to, to speak a couple of times. Uh, I still have a connection with those young people. Uh, they still call me Mr. White. I go back. <laughs> They tell their, their children and now some of them, their grandchildren about me and the times we spent together. I spent all of my resources as a single man working with those young people. I took them on trips. At least when I got my check, I would hire a bus and would go to Washington, D.C., go to Raleigh, go to the State Fair, go to the amusement park. Uh, I invested a lot of my time and energy and resources in those young people. And I'm just so proud uh, of what they've done and what they've accomplished. Wow. Uh, yesterday was my birthday, and many of them wished me happy, happy birthday on my webpage. <laughs> happy <yesterday>. birthday! <laughs> so connect with them and, 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 and think back uh, the kinds of things we did. Uh, we started we, we started a business. Uh, they made dashikis and sold money to raise money to do things in the community. So I think back on those times very fondly in Princeville. Right. And you also have a fund, uh, a program that is currently running every year. It's like a gathering. Can you talk about that? Uh, well, we go back and every year they have uh, what they call the old school mm -hmm. and they raise money for scholarships for young people in the community. Uh, they try to, um, they say they try to emulate uh, what I did with them with the young people in the community today. So I'm, I'm very pleased that they do that and, and I try to support that any way possible. So yes, I, I still do that. Uh, of course, I try every place I've been to try to leave something, uh, a legacy, and uh, both financial and, and, and human. And I think um, you know, Princeville is that. Uh, one of the young ladies who's in my youth group is now city council member. One person has been the assistant mayor. Mm -hmm. uh, so they've done some phenomenal things. Uh, they in all walks of life, they're teachers, they're assistant superintendents, um, they're ministers. Uh, they've just, I'm just so proud of them. Uh, as I am with young people that I work with in college as well. So I, it, you know, I'm just, that's, if you ask me, what's my legacy? I think it's the people that I've invested in, my time and effort, my love, my compassion, my support, and the few dollars that God has blessed me with. Thank you, Dr. White. It seems as if you invest a lot of your resources in human capital, that you value humans as, uh, and their potential to become the best that they can be, which is a lot different than other sorts of um, mindsets and models of uh, 
how in which we work and, and also um, interchange with commerce. But, you know, I, 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 I'm telling you that when I read this book, it, it just, you were so open and honest about your, your challenges, but also the, the moments of great um, accomplishment, but the journey was like this, <laughs> it's like that. But I thought that it's important for you to share because some of the things that you experience, you seem to have a strong sense of faith to get you through those times. Can you see the screen? I see you and, and I'm, I'm on the screen. I don't see your... Okay, so I'm going to go back. I'm going to go out and then go back in. Um, it seemed as if that you have a lot to share about how to um, pursue your divine destiny. So I wanted you to talk about that because you have contributed so much to the community and the society and everybody has the ability to do that at some extent and to bring the best out of every individual and their strengths and their weaknesses. How do you mold them to become leaders and, and of the future um, in so many aspects, whether it's in government, like you said, you that some of your students have become uh, preachers to leaders of organizations to social justice advocates. So um, from your book, Dr. White, some of the things I think you view as a prolific scholar, but also philosopher and also a person of strong faith. And I wanted to share some of the quotes um, that you have um, that I have read in the book that just stood out to me. And I want you to share with our community about how they can pursue their divine destiny. Nurturing our gardens, life plans requires time and attention. I see you as a person that has planted a lot of seeds. Mm -hmm. Giving more of oneself to others and inspiring others to be their very best as a human being is our purpose in life. Sunrises represent new opportunities, experiences, and directions. Sunsets represent opportunities for recovery, reflection, restoration, and renewal. Life lessens up and down mountains. I want you to talk about that and your trip to South Africa. Uh, the journey of getting up the mountain for the, the dinner was just as treacherous as going down. So. Talk about those things, Dr. White. Well, one of the things that uh, we do when we talk with young people about financial planning, we say that there's something called deferred gratification, that you need to put off some of the immediate gratifications and invest in, for the long term. If you put them off in the immediate, they will multiply and then become more plentiful in the future. So we call that in sociology, deferred gratification. Mm -hmm. The garden experience is about you and how you invest in yourself, things that are gonna make you more productive in the future. Um, if you are in college and you study a lot and you do all the assignments, you're not gonna have much, as much time to socialize. And so that's an investment in you. That's the garden in yourself. That's the same thing with the, the physical garden. 
you know, you have to do the hard work in the tough times. In the spring, when uh, it's time to till the soil, you've got to have to go out and till the soil. You've got to go out then and make the rows and fertilize and plant the vegetables or the fruits. And then throughout the spring and early summer, you have to make sure you till the soil and make sure they're aerated, you weed them. That's putting the work in during the time that's important. The same thing in our lives. Uh, we can't start off a career and live like we uh, have a fortune unless you inherited your millions of dollars. You have to put the time in yourself and your career so that when you get to the point later in your life, when you have a family or you want to retire, you have those resources, you can do that. So put the time in that's needed early on to develop yourself and your career. Uh, that's important. Uh, if I recall the second one, because your slide is not up anymore, <laughs> I, won't go, I can jump around, but I can uh -huh. start and work my way back up. Uh, yes. One of the things you got that, that? See it? Well, I'll, I'll go systematically then yes. since you, you have it back up. But mm -hmm. Giving oneself to others, uh, inspiring others to be the very best they can be. Uh, physicists uh, that I, I'm, I'm very fond of, uh, wrote, he said that the purpose of human being is consciousness and the purpose of consciousness is creation, is creating. And that if we don't create something, are we really conscious? That there ought to be some evidence that we've lived. And so for me, as someone who believes in humanity, for me, that creation is creating something of a people putting a spark in them, supporting them, encouraging them. So that's my drive, is to help other people to be the very best they can be. You know, I feel blessed. People invested in me uh, from on the farm, in high school. People saw something in this country boy, saw that he had potential, took time to give me advice, to give me encouragement. Uh, my family members sacrificed to support me through college, people invested in me. And I think that if, if people invested in me, I have an opportunity and a responsibility to invest in others. And, and I tell people that I may have an opportunity to assist in any way, that you don't owe me anything except to pass it on to the next generation of somebody else. And when you're helping that other person, you're actually reflecting what I've done for you. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of the motivation that you just need to pass it on. And because mm -hmm. so many people have invested so much in me, I feel a moral obligation to invest in others and, and pass on because I can't take um, me, Harvey, White in the future. I tell my students when we're talking about jobs, sometimes there are going to be plenty of jobs because the baby boom is going to die. And I don't want to sound morbid, <laughs> but I'm human. Yes. So I can't take anything with me. I can't take money. I can't take my talents. Uh, when I cease, everything that's in me is going to cease. And I believe in the spiritual manifestation that's going to take place, but that's going to be a spiritual form. It's There's a lot of Harvey Whites around here. <laughs> well, that's the you're, goal. Not, your spirit never dies. Well, that's the goal is put as much of me and other people as possible. Yes. And then have them put it into others. And as long as they're doing that, I will never die. Uh, so if I keep it to myself, you know, I did that and uh, mm -hmm. nobody else can have it because I did it. Uh, nobody, no one else can appreciate this the way that I appreciate it. In fact, I gave a commencement address about that. 
about a tree. I saw that tree and it was so beautiful. It was just for me and no one else can appreciate that tree like me. So I must take it away because it belongs to me. No, what I have in me does not belong to me. It was given to me uh, to hold on to temporarily so that I can share. Um, you know, I talk about mules, mountains, and mansions. I explain each one of those. At the end of the book, I talk about we've been blessed with some fairly nice homes. Mm -hmm. But even on the farm, that house was not just meant for us. It was meant to be shared. Mm -hmm. And so we, part of what we do and we've done throughout my wife and I, our career and, and life together, we've always been host families for others. We mm -hmm. have children that have come to live with us for years mm -hmm. uh, from other countries. Uh, that International we students, yeah. And, so we, and, and American <laughs> students as well. But we, we believe that, and, and she has the same passion, that God didn't bless us just so that we can enjoy this in, in our lifetime. He, we're blessed so that we can share and be a blessing to others. So that's part of my giving of myself to others. I just feel like I have a moral obligation, a spiritual obligation, and a human obligation to do that. Relative to sun rises and sunsets, you know, when the sun rises in the morning, it's a beautiful sight. Yes. In the evening, it's dark, and, you know, sometimes it gets scary. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I use that analogy to say that we're going to have sunrise in our lives, new experiences uh, are going to come. But for every opportunity, there's a beginning and an ending. And we don't need to take those in a negative sense. When I got fired, that was a sunset. It wasn't a pleasant thing. Mm -hmm. It was a sunset, but it was an opportunity to reflect, uh, prepare myself, and to do something else. Mm -hmm. And so that's the whole notion of sunrise and sunset. You know, it's a, um, the expression is you're not a failure if you don't learn from your experiences. Mm -hmm. I've made some mistakes and hopefully I've learned from them. So every time there's a sunrise, I'm excited. There's a new position, I'm excited. You know, I'm gonna make the very best of that opportunity that I can. But I also need to understand that at some point in time, that experience is going to end. It may end because I realize there's something else I need to be doing. It may end because people decide that I'm not the best person anymore. There could be any number of reasons, but that does not have to be the end of Harvey White's expression of himself, uh, his opportunity to make a difference, uh, to impact other human beings and to be an asset to humanity. And I need to, we all need to realize that and learning growth from those sunrises and sunsets. sunsets. So yes, uh, I believe that uh, very passionately and that's been a part of my life. There's always been a sunset. When we were in Mobile, uh, mm -hmm. I was able to create this center for healthy communities that uh, we can talk about. But mm -hmm. that was based on my experiences in Pittsburgh creating a center of minority health. I had that experience there. Uh, it was a wonderful sunrise when I went to mm -hmm. Alabama, and they said, uh, by the way, I was a trailer spouse. You know my wife. She's a very distinguished uh, transplant surgeon. Uh -huh. uh, I went as a trailer spouse. They didn't know what to do with me. So they said, what do you want to do? I said, well, I help create this Center for Health and Communities, at, uh, Center for Minority Health in Pittsburgh. Uh, let me try and do that. People in Alabama have worse health conditions and um, greater disparities in Pittsburgh. So that was a sunrise for me. And it worked, you know, phenomenally well. I raised quite a bit of money. We, uh, I became uh, 
a very active person in, in the community. Uh, I was co-chair of the new first Black Mayor's transition team, I, very, very active. I was president mm -hmm. of Senior Citizen Services. We raised $2 million to create a, a well, state-of-art exercise center for, for seniors. We, we did some wonderful things. I was on the Community Foundation Board, uh, but that situation was not the best situation for my wife. Mm -hmm. And so it became necessary for that to be a sunset. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand, but it was a sunrise coming to Pittsburgh. In mm -hmm. fact, you mentioned- To that, that winter. <laughs> you go from uh, to very brutal winters from, uh, as well. Uh, but no, but <laughs> you talk I about that in the book. Uh, it's interesting. I, and I, I don't, I, t I told you, I came, I came to, <laughs> to Delaware to retire, by the way. <laughs> and I said to uh, Pastor Beeman, I don't need any position in the church. I've been a steward for 20 plus years. <laughs> But I'm active in the church and, and, and Sunday school teacher. I've been, I've been assistant superintendent, steward. I've been very active. I, I still am, hopefully, uh, making a contribution. But I, I look at that and said, oh, and people say, why do you leave? You raise all that money and you create the center. But it was time to go. It was time for, and that there was something telling me, and, and it wasn't a good fit for my wife. It was time to go. Now, this is the point that I've, I've, I've shared. My wife and I talk about this sometimes. We had been, we met in Pittsburgh, married in Pittsburgh, moved to Alabama, never been close to family. Uh, we have surrogate, my daughters have surrogate uncles and aunts that we've created, those mm -hmm. extended families. But when we moved from Alabama to um, Delaware, we did not, were not aware that her parents were going to transition, that my brother was going to transition, my sisters, two sisters going to transition, that we would be in a, we needed to be in a place that we could spend quality time with our loved ones during that stage of their life. Mm -hmm. Now, Alabama would have been impossible for her to go up to New York and spend time, quality time with the parents. So that we didn't realize when that sun set in Alabama, there was a sunrise here, a mm -hmm. sunrise for her to make a difference in the community, a sunrise for me to be part of the Biden school, a sunrise for us in terms of once in this relationship for us to be close to family. She has a brother here. I have a nephew in, in, in here. So another kind of sunset uh, that's been extremely impactful in our lives that we didn't realize, but God knew. And, and interestingly enough, when we were about to leave uh, Alabama, I said to my wife, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. I said, but we are persons of faith. We've seen what God has done and we know what he can do and we have to be faithful. And I, this has been one of the most wonderful transitions, sunrises of all, because I've had a chance to spend quality time with relatives uh, at a very crucial period in our lives uh, that wouldn't have happened if we were in Alabama. So yes, uh, I am a person of faith. When I joined uh, the AME Church in Pittsburgh, mm -hmm. an elder came up and said to me, we're so happy to have you. And I was pretty soon appointed a steward and, and became one of the lay leaders in that church. But he went on to say, educated people like you usually don't need the church. Yes, I read that. And I thought that was very interesting that the pastor would say that. Well, he wasn't a pastor. He was, he was an elder, but he was okay. part of the mm -hmm. pastoral staff. 
And I, of course, you read it, so you know what I said. Well, I, and you were going through some tough times, and you felt the intervention. Oh yes, uh, oh yes. So it was of a higher uh, being in some tough situations right, that I'm someone sure. got you through that. <laughs> and you know, you learn. You know, you learn. One of the things <laughs> in, in philosophy, we talk about the uh, teleological argument. I, I won't talk too much about that, but argument of design that you can look at a stone and look at a watch, you know, there's design. Well, I said, I want to learn more about the person who's the designer. <laughs> this education can learn me about what's been created, but it doesn't tell me about the creator. So I, my spirituality helps me to better know the creator and my place in the creation. So that's part of my spiritual journey. And, and what drives me to want to know more about the creator. I can look at all these things that's been created. And by the way, well, all of our knowledge and wisdom would not been able to replicate what God has done in the creation. You know, we are marvelously and wonderfully made. Mm -hmm. We can't replicate that. And so I want to learn more about the person that created those things that I'm studying about. But that, but but you're right. I've had a lot of mountains in my life. Uh, I've been up and down a lot of mountains. And mm -hmm. and that's the piece that I think the last thing was on the list. You know, one of the things that we always talk about is preparing to climb the mountains in our lives. And that's important. And then we get to the mountain, talk about the mountaintop experience, whether we're talking about a spiritual experience from religion, whether we're talking about a career experience and being the, at the top of our professional careers, we climb those mountains, we do the things, we do the preparation necessary to get to the top. And the sole understanding that I think we need to be aware of is that yes, we can climb the mountain. There are two things we need to be prepared, by the way. One, as you climb up the ladder, don't make sure you're climbing up the right building. Don't get to the top and find that you've climbed the wrong building, you climbed the wrong mountain. But, but once you get to the top and you experience that and you, you, you live in that gratification, as with, as with everything, there's a sunrise and a sunset. And we have to also go down the mountain as well. And one of the things in climbing, and I've climbed, um, some pretty tall mountains, uh, Mount Kenya, Kilimanjaro, Mount Nasi, and, and, and Lead Mountain. And, and so I've, I've climbed some physical mountains, but the figurative mountains as well. And one of the things I've learned in mountain climbing, real physical mountains is you, you have to prepare to climb the mountains. I've done repelling the mountains and you have to repair. But one of the things that you have to understand that you can climb up the mountain, you need a certain set of skills, but you also need skills to cl climb down the mountain. And we tend to prepare for going up the mountain, but not down the mountain. And most injuries incur going down, down the, the mountain, mountain, which it you takes, had shared. <laughs> it takes a different set of muscles. You have to uh, yeah. going down the mountain. Uh, you have to be more agile. So you're pulling up. That's one set of skills. But going down is another set of skills. And what we don't do sometimes, and why when things happen in our lives, is it's... it's so devastating because we haven't prepared for going down the mountain. We've always prepared to get into the mountaintop and staying on the mountaintop and having that mountaintop experience, but not when that mountaintop experience is over and you have to go down the mountain. What is it like? Uh, I heard a sermon once, uh, a very prolific sermon, and the, and the, the uh, person said, we don't live on the mountaintop, we live in the valley. And we can climb the mountain and we ought to climb the mountain. It's a wonderful experience but we live in the valley and we have to be prepared to get down from the valley, uh, down from the mountain and live in the valley, but we have to get down. And so that's a different set of preparations. And so 
yeah, going up and down the mountain. So I, in the book, I talk about literally driving up the mountain and I did it. I was frightened. <laughs> uh, it was something that living on this flat plane did not prepare me to do. And when I got to the mountain, I became very confident. I made it. I drove up the mountain until my colleague and friend said to me, but you know, it's more dangerous driving down the mountain than driving up the mountain because it's easier to lose control. If you right. if cross stops and you lose your brakes going up the mountain, you'll roll backwards, but you're likely to ride it, stop. But going down the mountain, if your brakes fail, uh, you're probably gonna have a very tragic situation. So yes, you have to prepare to do both. So my life has involved a lot of mountains and uh, a lot of up and downs and each experience has made me much stronger. Yes. Thank you so much, Dr. White. I also want to say that you did mention about the Center for Healthy Communities is that it provides full scholarships for students that want to enter the medical profession. Um, and those students are also obliged to go out and serve the community. I think that's just fantastic. But also you are a very supportive husband of the first African-American female kidney and transplant surgeon as well to be supportive, a supportive husband to allow your wife to thrive as a top transplant surgeon um, is remarkable. And sometimes you may have had to be in the background. You may have had to go to Pittsburgh because the opportunity presented uh, better for her, but you made it work for you as well. Can you talk about that? Because I'm sure, I can't imagine her journey, um, but the lives that she has uh, transcended, those who have had to go off dialysis, like my father-in-law, she actually did his kidney transplant. And I was in the rating room at Christiana Care, and she was able to get that kidney in, and it was a little difficult, and she did, and his life is so much better for it. So I want to say thank you, because behind every strong woman is someone, of a man that is actually there uh, to support her. She wouldn't have been able to do it without you. Well, I don't take credit uh, for her success. I, we've had uh, mutual reinforcing careers. Um, uh, she's been very supportive of, of my career and I've been very supportive of hers. Fortunately, except when I was in Alabama, I stayed out of medicine. <laughs> <laughs> but you were sort of in medicine. You were creating I, I the, out, but, the uh, new I doctors, future doctors. Twist, twist on the medicine piece. But <laughs> no, she has had a phenomenal career. And when I met her, she was finished her residency. And you know, God sent me to Pittsburgh. I was planning to go back to Southern where I'd been dean. Mm -hmm. uh, but circumstances made it possible for me to stay there. Uh, she stayed there. We met, we married. Um, and very short romance, by the way. By the way, the story in the book I tell about how a medical student that I befriended from, from uh, Louisiana called me and said, I found your wife. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no, there, there are a couple of things I would say. One is uh, we talked earlier uh, about my purpose of helping other people be the very best they can be. And I think that applies particularly to your helpmate. And it's my job to help her to be the very best she can be. And I, I hope our relationship reflects that, that I've tried to help her to save as many lives as possible, to be as impactful as possible. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think she's done the same for me. What made it easier is that at 23, I was city manager. Um, 
I've been, you know, student government president. I've been a national leader while I was in college. I've been a dean at Southern University when I met her. So my career was pretty far along when I met her. And so it was it's easy for me then to look back at this young surgeon who just started her career and say, how can I help her? It took me 20 years to convince her to write her book. <laughs> and I read Dr. Scandalberry's book too. <laughs> and, and so she wrote a book. But, you know, that's part of what I think, uh, one, as a husband, but as a human being, I have a moral responsibility to do is help others to be the best they can be. And if I can't help my wife, who am I supposed to help? Exactly. So that, that's part of, I think, uh, the joy I experience every time I see her getting an award. Uh, I, I revel in that. Uh, I tell the story about when I met her, where she was. I tell her, I don't tell other people. So it's a little secret how nervous she was to make a speech and I had to help her. She doesn't mm -hmm. even come to me. She has to write a speech now. She doesn't run it by me. So she's, I've seen phenomenal growth in my wife and I'm so proud of her and what she's done, what she's doing. I'm not sure it's you're aware, but she's being honored by the Delaware Historical Society as a Delawarean for 2021, about 2021. Mm -hmm. uh, there's going to be a, a national celebration, a statewide celebration for her in October uh, for that accomplishment. And I'm going to be up front uh, helping her to celebrate because Again, I'm proud of her. I'm proud of what she's done, proud of what she's doing, what she's accomplished. I'm still proud of what she's going to do. She's transitioned out of the transplant field, but she's ha perhaps having a greater impact in what she's doing now than she did as a surgeon. She's become an advocate uh, mm -hmm. for uh, disparities, uh, for vaccine, uh, um, how there's disparity, how we have to make sure that there's equity in the distribution of vaccines and how we have to address other health disparities. She has become an advocate out there. And then again, I'm excited to see that aspect of her career as well. Well, Dr. White, we could be here all day. I mean, I've, I've had opportunity of working with you and just being so inspired by your work and some of the things that we were working on as well. But, um, you know, you're still fighting for social justice issues and, you know, we talked a little bit about artificial intelligence. We talked about biotechnology and gene editing. As you know, there is a gene therapy transfer um, as a potential universal cure for sickle cell, but that's not without long-term effects um, that are still unknown. Um, and so our community is really concerned about some of the bioethical issues around gene therapy. But it also seems as if the digital age is, is here. And the next step is to use robots, to artificial intelligence, to replace labor. And even some of the service industry jobs uh, pre-COVID are now gone. And so it seems like there's a shift um, and how our economy and commerce is moving. But we discussed that there's some concerns um, and dangers for that because it leaves out, as you said, you invest in human beings. I invest in human capital. We sort of see that you lose humanity, a sense of humanity, if you replace humans with robots and machines. That gray area of consciousness, the gray area that there's not, nothing is ever black and white in this, in how we 
move through life or in our working um, environment. So what I want you to do is talk about that. Um, you know, I don't know if that's going to be 20 years from now. Um, it probably will, hopefully, and in, in not when I'm still working, but <laughs> if I still have a job, I, mean, I could re be replaced by a robot or a machine. Um, but what do you see as the danger in that? Uh, because we can do something does not mean we should do it. Now, I'm an advocate of artificial intelligence. I've given lectures on that in Ethiopia, Malawi, um, here in, the, in this country on artificial intelligence. The, the danger is, and, and, and I use the term human talent, I don't use the term human capital for a reason, we could talk about the difference in those two, but one of the things that, if we go back to slavery, the artists who created many of the great works of the world were able to do that because somebody else was doing the manual labor. So artificial intelligence has the capacity to liberate us from doing some of the manual labor. So there's nothing inherently wrong with that. The problem is, is what the danger side, it's not the, it's, it could be the misuse of artificial intelligence. For example, who's gonna lose the jobs? And what are we doing if we're gonna lose the jobs? How are we preparing them that transition? If we simply, in fact, replace labor and allow a few people become even richer today because they don't have the labor costs that's part of most organizations, that's not in humankind best interest. That you then displace millions of people, they don't have jobs, even if you give them welfare, there's less meaning, less sense of worth. And that's what we don't want to take away from human beings. So one, we need to plan this transition. If artificial intelligence, by the way, artificial intelligence now is being used to decide who gets which operation, which doesn't, who doesn't get an operation. So who gets the transplant, who doesn't? <laughs> Kidney or liver or heart? Artificial intelligence. So now here's the danger, the other side of it though. People of color in general, African-Americans in particular, and this is my lecture in Africa in particular, are not putting in the intelligence in the robots and the machines. And those machines are gonna reflect the values of those who are programming them. Mm -hmm. And so what my arc argument is, is that one is going to displace us in a way that's gonna be a disparity because the, even if we look, and by the way, even in, I do talent management, even in the field of human resources, the first round of applications are usually done in many organizations by artificial intelligence. They've got a, a, a program uh, that would eliminate the people who don't meet certain criteria. So how you program that system to select the applicants, you put those values in that system. And if we're not part of the ones putting the values in the system, then we're gonna get eliminated. So that means we're gonna be impacted in a despairing way. If I say you have to have a career, a degree from Harvard, or you have to have a master's in a certain field, I'm actually discerning who's gonna be considered. And the machine is simply gonna do a much better job than human beings do at discriminating. If I put my my prejudices into the program, those prejudices are gonna be reflected in artificial intelligence. Uh, I was in South Africa where I first got involved in artificial intelligence when the professor said, artificial intelligence, something called the fourth generation, the fourth industrial revolution is what they're talking about here. 
is, is programming people and programming, um, not people, programming automobiles to be autonomous drivers. And those autonomous drivers have been programmed by people from Europe. And those, if you're walking down the street in New York, you're more likely to get hit by an autonomously driven vehicle because the person who programmed the vehicle is going to program the car to recognize European features. Mm -hmm. So if we're not involved in programming the vehicle, we're likely to be more likely to get hit and run over by the vehicle. There are all kinds of ethical decisions in, in just automobile programming. If the automobile is autonomously driven and it has to make decisions, does it hit the, the pedestrian or hit the other car? All those decisions are being made. We need to be involved in programming um, and, and putting the intelligence in the artificial machines, the robots. We're not involved in that. So we need to be, big data is the piece that's out there that's put into the robots. We need to be inf involved in creating the big data. People create data on us. Mm -hmm. The data has been not created by us. So. That's another whole lecture. I don't want to go too yeah, far. Yes, so we can uh, invite is. you back on the show to have a discussion on that as well. We I have some thoughts on that as well. <laughs> service to the robots. So, but the other question was by biogenetics that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Again, I am a proponent of taking knowledge as far as we can take it. And I think being able to use gene therapy for sickle cell uh, is gene therapy. That's how we have the that technology for the vaccine for the coronavirus, right? Uh, all of that's wonderful stuff. But we also have the capacity in gene therapy to, to determine what human life looks like, how tall, the color of your skin, eye color, all of those things could be manipulated. And it, it's important then for us to understand the question of ethics. Just because I can do something doesn't mean that I should do it. Do I have the right to determine what human features should manifest themselves in society? Because if you allowed it to be Hitler's decision, everybody would have blue eyes and blonde hair. Mm -hmm. And so I think if you get to the point that we don't look at the question of, are there some human characteristics that we should not allow gene therapy to impact, that's an ethical decision because we can, talk about eliminating certain features in humanity. I think it's fine to talk about health issues that's gonna make human beings live better positive lives. But when we start talking about ethics uh, or, or what we talk about beauty, uh, aesthetics in human beings, that's a moral question for me. So we have a right to say that everybody should be six feet tall. Everybody should have thin lips or big lips. Do we have a right to say that? Nature created diversity for a reason. And to the extent we start playing with those human traits that nature created, I think we're trying to do something that only God has a right to do, which will ultimately lead to our demise, I believe. Uh, again, I, I know we don't have too much time, but, but it's important for us to question simply because we can do it, should we do it from a scientific perspective? And so there are questions that I think this generation uh, of young scientists and activists are going to have to address right. uh, from economics uh, to artificial intelligence to biotechnology. I have been a social justice activist uh, starting with college and the environmental justice movement, health disparities. Racial justice is important. 
this dilemma we're having now with policing, those things are important, we need to fight them. But what's happening, and we need to understand this uh, very clearly, the oppression is becoming more sophisticated. Yes. Uh, it's not the overt oppression that future generations may have to worry about. We can outlaw uh, what the police are doing right now. We can, we, can, we can solve that. But we need to make sure that as technology becomes more prevalent, that the oppression does not take on a technological orientation. And I think that's what the, this generation needs to be very vigilant about. Yeah, we can talk about police brutality. We, yes, Black lives do matter. But I also think that we need to focus on the technology and what it has a chance to, the capacity to do for oppressing people and discriminating against people and creating disparities even worse than we have today. Well, Dr. Harvey, we could talk for hours and hours. As yes, you we know. could. Forgive me for being long-winded. <laughs> no, sorry. no, this has been great. But I want to end. Um, you know, you've your if for those, please, please, please go to www.lulu.com. Mules, mountains, mansions: the path to the last garden. I encourage you all to support Dr. White and to learn about all of the great work as he's done, but also to give you a path of how you can be the best person that you can be in your life. I want to leave Dr. White to ask you. 100 years from now, what will the world say about Dr. White? What do you want your legacy to be? You know, Dr. King said, uh, I want the world to say I tried to help somebody. I think that's a wonderful legacy. Um, I want people to understand that God gave me uh, some opportunities. And I tried to use those opportunities, one, to make Harvard White the very best person he could be, mm -hmm. and then to use those opportunities to make life as hospitable, as wholesome as I can for other people, that I try to give something back. I try to share of myself. And I always, in um, any presentation, my classes and all, I tell people, uh, I want people to believe. Um, and if nothing else, believe in yourself. I want people to believe and other people that they, regardless of how bad we think of Donald Trump is, believe in human beings that, is, that we can have an impact on humanity, that we can make this place better. I want people to believe in the social contract that we have with each other. And I believe the world needs that at this point in time, more than perhaps any other time. Because I've traveled to seven continents, uh, Dr. Anderson, I've not been to Antarctica. I don't like cold weather, so I'm not trying to go there. But <laughs> I used to be very anti-American. Mm -hmm. What I've learned is, is that, and we could talk about this for a whole another hour. Let me well, be come back. on again. I'm bringing you back on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what I've learned is, in spite of this place, it's racist, sexist, it's homophobic, all those other isms out there it still is the best place I've been. And the world still looks to us to set the example. And I hope my life and how I live and what I write sets the example. Here's why. 
the world needs to know that there's a place somewhere in the world where Black folks, white folks, Asians, Christian, Jews, Muslim, Hindus can, can worship freely and interact, that we can value and appreciate each other, each other for our differences. I think the world needs that. And we then as human beings need to create that space. And I hope that my legacy is that I help to create in some small way that space out there that we can see the manifestation of the social contract where government does for people, where we actually do things that are in the best interest for society. Uh, as a public administrator, as a uh, professor, as a father, as a friend, as a mentor, I hope that's my legacy that I've somehow inspired us to be more cohesive as a society, that we look at each other and can see the value that we bring to the table in our differences. And I hope people can see the love that I have for humanity, uh, that all of that animosity that used to be in me, that God has filled me with love and that I try to express that in every way possible I can in my interaction with people. And even those people who sometimes have animus towards me, mm -hmm. I, I still say, that's something that's a product that God made and, and I'm going to love it. Uh, I'm not going to love, I'm, I'll love the person. I won't love the behavior, but I love the person. And, and that's what I hope the world sees is that as, as Dr. King said, I, I tried to help somebody, that I used what God gave me uh, to the best that I could. Didn't leave anything on the table at the end of the day, but I gave it all. So thank you so much for allowing me to be here with you today for sharing and Continue to do the great work you're doing, Dr. Anderson. I, I admire the work you're doing and your zeal for doing it and your commitment to do it. And if there's any way I can be helpful, please don't hesitate to call. Thank you, Dr. White. I am so just taken aback. And I know that our community really respects and appreciates your journey. And I'm so happy that you joined us today. Um, before I close, I just want to uh, let everyone know that they can go to Toba Health TV uh, and visit our website at www.tobacommunityhealth.org. And you can listen to this interview with Dr. Harvey White and others. If you like the content, please make a donation to our cash app at dollar sign Tova Health or PayPal at contact at tovacommunityhealth.org. Again, I wanna thank Dr. Harvey White for coming on Tova Tuesday today, pursuing your divine destiny. I think we're all um, energized and ready to move forward, um, being that we're gonna have sunsets as well as sunrises. Thank you, Dr. White. It's been a pleasure having you today. Thank you. Take care. <laughs>